This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. To support the work we do for as little as a buck a month, or to sign up as a member and get commercial-free versions of every episode, plus members-only bonus content, sign up at patreon.com slash bestofleft, or visit the Contribute tab at bestofleft.com. Now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the threats to reproductive justice everywhere, from the newest Supreme Court nominee to the entire long and storied history of the battle to control women's bodies. Clips today come from The Bradcast, Counterspin, Making Contact, Speak Out with Tim Wise, and In the Thick. Many uh, Democrats and, and opponents of Trump, of course, are putting Roe v. Wade right at the top of the list of things that will now be reversed if Kavanaugh is seated. Uh, that's what Trump had promised repeatedly during the campaign. I see no reason to believe it won't happen. And as you wrote uh, last night at Slate, uh, that's not just what could happen if he's confirmed, but will almost certainly happen. You you describe how, uh, as a, a member of the D.C. Circuit Court, Kavanaugh actually uh, offered a roadmap for overturning Roe in this case of this 17-year-old girl, this undocumented uh, immigrant minor who was being held in detention by the Trump administration just last year in 2017, uh, and uh, they were trying to prevent her from receiving an abortion. How did... Kavanaugh's opinions in that case offer the roadmap for uh, essentially overturning Roe, as you see it. So Kavanaugh basically laid out for uh, everyone to see precisely how the courts and the Supreme Court can hollow out Roe to the point of meaninglessness without actually acknowledging what it's doing. So under current Supreme Court precedent, uh, an abortion restriction is unconstitutional if it's an undue burden on a woman's right to abortion access. That's the standard, an undue burden. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I think quite reasonably in this case, the ACLU said, look, the, the Trump administration is barring this 17-year-old girl from getting an abortion at all. That is the, the, an absolute ban on her right to choose Surely that counts as an undue burden. Uh, the, the Trump administration responded by saying, well, no, if she wants an abortion, she should just self-deport back to her home country, where, by the way, abortion is illegal. Um, and Kavanaugh, who sat on the, the three-judge panel that first adjudicated this dispute, he reached this bizarre compromise where he would have let uh, the government force this poor girl to remain pregnant for at least two more weeks um, so that she could try to find a sponsor, so a family member in the country who would take her into their custody, uh, and then the government would no longer be able to control her abortion decision. But he, he also wrote, if at the end of these two weeks she hasn't found a sponsor, she does not have a guaranteed right to abortion access. She will just have to start over at the beginning of this, of this litigation and try again. Here's the problem there. She was already 16 weeks pregnant when Kavanaugh issued this ruling. She was living in Texas where abortion is banned at 20 weeks. And every week into her unwanted pregnancy, the eventual abortion procedure became riskier and riskier. So Kavanaugh was saying that it was not an undue burden on this poor girl to force her to continue carrying an unwanted second trimester pregnancy for at least two more weeks, right up to the point that it would be literally illegal for her to terminate the pregnancy, um, basically because to Kavanaugh an undue burden means nothing. So that, I think, is, is where the court will go in this direction mm. to say, oh, well, undue burden, that's just such a malleable standard that will allow any kind of abortion restriction and just say that's not an undue burden because we say so. So they'll just uh, basically uh, th uh, this is a roadmap to essentially chip away, make it harder and harder and harder until it's essentially impossible to obtain this constitutional right, even if they don't overturn it outright, is seems to be the argument you're making here. That's exactly right. You know, if the court comes out and says, we hereby overturn Roe versus Wade, then they're going to incur a massive political blowback that will probably sweep Democrats into power. But if the court just hollows out Roe, doesn't admit what it's doing, but continues to rule 
horribly in cases like this undocumented minor case and say, well, that's not an undue burden and that's not an undue burden, then it can make Roe meaningless, uh, essentially uh, abolish Roe and the constitutional right to an abortion while maintaining political cover. I think Kavanaugh was chosen to fill that role. He will be very adept at it. He will help guide the court out of its abortion rights jurisprudence uh, and do so in a disingenuous way that keeps political backlash at a minimum. People like to say the devil is in the details. For its account of the Trump administration's proposed changes to rules around family planning programs, the New York Times headline, Trump rule would bar some abortion advice at federally funded clinics, suggests details might be where it's at. It's just some advice at some clinics. Even more so, the headline chosen by the Washington Post. Is it a gag rule after all? a closer look at changes to Title X funding regarding abortion. But what if the devil, as it were, is in the big picture? If the measures chipping away at women's reproductive rights, waiting periods, notification requirements, clinic closings, were all of a piece, and this new rule requiring a bright line of physical and financial separation between Title X family planning programs and those in which abortion is supported or referred is simply another tool in an agenda that is most usefully addressed by media at its root. Coverage focused too hard on branch, the Post gives credulous attention to supposed distinctions between abortion counseling and referral, leaves untested certain unspoken premises. That abortion is not health care, and so it's reasonable to segregate it. That women's bodies, and especially poor women's bodies, are ultimately socially owned, and so it's reasonable for others to debate and decide what happens to them. And that even though nearly one in four women in the U.S. will have an abortion, it's okay to leave the subject shrouded in stigma, suffering, and misinformation. The changes around federal family planning funding offer as good a chance as any to recenter the conversation around reproductive rights. We're joined now by Kinsey Hastet, a senior policy manager in the Guttmacher Institute's Washington, D.C. office. She joins us by phone from D.C. Welcome to Counterspin, Kinsey Hastet. Hi there, Janine. Thank you very much for having me. Well, by saying media should address the various predations on reproductive rights as being related, I don't mean to say, of course, that we shouldn't get right the precise implications and impacts of each of those uh, predations. Uh, I know that the language on this latest proposed rule has just come out, but from what you have seen, what do you think it would mean on the ground? I think there's absolutely no question that the proposal we've seen from the Trump administration is very much a revival of the domestic gag rule as first proposed by President Reagan. It would indeed exclude safety net health centers that also offer abortion using non-federal funds and would do so by requiring extensive physical and financial separation. And for the record, as you have noted, abortion is very much legal. And it is also perfectly legal for clinics to offer that service using separate funds in the same space that they offer Title X supported family planning care. It also would ban referral for abortion and actually call on providers to actively mislead their patients who have expressed a desire to seek abortion services by giving them lists of providers who offer different comprehensive care and not denoting which ones are actually offering abortion services. It also requires that pregnant patients be referred for prenatal services and other care related to delivery, regardless of their wishes. And it also undermines the provision of comprehensive and unbiased information on all of a patient's pregnancy options removing the guarantee that all patients seen through this program currently have that they would be able to receive such non-directive counseling. I think additionally, the rule that we have seen so far 
goes further, too. It's really making clear that at the heart of this effort from the Trump administration is an intent to totally reshape the network of entities and the scope of services that have long been supported by this Title X publicly funded family planning program. They are seeking to disadvantage providers who focus on reproductive health, which includes but is not limited to Planned Parenthood, and in fact are opening the door to Title X funds to ideologically motivated entities that are actually unwilling or unable to provide a broad range of contraceptive method options. These rules also promote other ideologically motivated approaches to family planning, such as abstinence until marriage, and take away the guarantee of contraceptive access for many patients, I think, by redefining family planning. And I appreciate the, you know, wanting to understand both this role, but connect it to a much broader, at this point, relentless and coercive assault that we are seeing from the Trump administration against individuals' sexual and reproductive health and rights. Because at the end of the day, we are talking about denying patients the highest standard of family planning care. And we are talking about denying women access to information and services that are necessary in their own right to self-determination. Let me just draw out as a point of information, Title X, the 1970 statute that created these federally funded family planning programs, already doesn't cover abortion services. The law already prohibits federal funds from covering abortion. Let's just say that, right? Yes, for sure. Since the program's inception in 1970, Title X funds have always been prohibited from going toward abortion services. And currently, entities that receive Title X funds must already demonstrate that they are keeping those funds and the family planning services they support quite separate from any abortion services they may provide. That's why I think media coverage that just narrowly dives into this latest thing that was said and doesn't give you that context is so is so deeply misleading. And also, I think that the Trump White House gains a lot of, of leverage, and I, you know, charge media with this as well, from sort of threatening something and then doing something that looks like a little bit different. And there's kind of a Oh, a sigh of relief. It was going to be this. And then it turned out to be something, something less. Of course, we want details. But in some ways, that focus on details loses what's really happening. Absolutely. I think it's essential to step back and uh, see the forest for the trees. In all manner of regard, we have seen the Trump administration and social conservatives in Congress really advancing a coercive agenda against individuals' reproductive health and rights, everything from seeking to roll back affordable health insurance coverage, both in the private and the public markets, undermining people's access to affordable contraceptive coverage under the ACA, trying to undercut comprehensive sex education programs, and now this most recent attack on publicly funded family planning. I think there are any number of fronts on which we're seeing this attack, and it's unconscionable and it's relentless. Yeah, and in in the same way that isolating rhetorically abortion in the way that the folks who are opposing it are not isolating it, it really is a part of a bigger agenda for them. I also find it odd that media tend to report abortion and reproductive health as though it only had meaning for pregnant women, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) when, of course, policies determining whether a person has the right to decide when and if she gives birth, that's about all women, you know, Um, it's it's a much broader issue and the tendency to sort of make it very specific. And even in this case, you could read this current media coverage and think, Oh, well, I prob- I'm not going to be going to a Title X clinic, you know, so this news doesn't impact me. That's a concern. Absolutely. Well, and I think, you know, it, it has been additionally notable that much of the media coverage has focused on the abortion aspect of this, which is a frame being advanced by anti-abortion advocates and policymakers, when in reality, this particular vein of attack is very much focused on contraceptive care, is focused on people's access to whatever methods of birth control are going to work best for them. And so even in trying to go after abortion and framing it as such, I think in a lot of places, the fact that this is really an effort to undermine people's access to birth control 
and related preventive services is getting a bit lost. Well, Media Matters' Sharon Can found that Fox News was responsible for 54% of all the segments about abortion on evening cable news. There seems to be, in media... And there's there's an anti anti abortion space, but there's no pro abortion space, you know, so mm-hmm. I feel like right wingers get to say that abortion should be a source of pain and stigma and silence and suffering. And then liberals get to say, but legal and fair research has found that as the restrictions on reproductive rights go up, the sheer amount of coverage tends to go down. And in that silence, misinformation can grow like mildew, you know, including just simple medical, biological misinformation. I just wonder, what are some to you of the most misunderstood aspects of your work area of publicly funded family planning programs? What what frustrates you when you come up against the way people misunderstand things? You know, I think one of the pieces, again, that often gets lost in the narrative are the people who rely on publicly funded family planning for care. Because at the end of the day, I can sit in DC and dissect words and we can pontificate, but where the rubber meets the road is for people who rely on these publicly funded programs and providers and have found providers that they trust. The whole point of Title X in the beginning was to kind of close the resource gap between women and couples who have more resources and those who have less and face systemic barriers to accessing affordable and high quality care. Because everyone has the right to determine for themselves whether and when to have children, whether and when to become pregnant and to maintain a healthy, you know, sex life. And I think when we are talking about all of these various and sundry attacks And as policymakers exercise them on publicly funded programs, which is, of course, where they have the most authority, ultimately, we are jeopardizing the health and well-being of millions of people who are largely low income, largely people of color, and people who are otherwise underserved and have faced so many barriers to getting care, and some even who have experienced historic coercion when it comes to reproductive health. And so when we are talking about imposing subpar standards of care or forcing providers to mislead their patients in this context, it's incredibly troubling and, in fact, I would say offensive. Well, I understand some 20 state attorneys general support a nationwide preliminary injunction to stop Trump from reducing access to Title X. In practical terms, what do you think may happen next? What does the resistance or pushback look like? I think only time will tell. We have to see over the next couple of months how all of this rolls out. The Trump administration first advanced new criteria to assess applications for these Title X grants earlier this year, which, as you point out, prompted lawsuits um, from a couple of organizations. And so, What happens to those lawsuits will matter. You know, which type of entities apply for Title X funding will matter. Those applications actually happen to be due today. So we'll see how this network starts to shape up over the course of the next few months or how it might change. And then I think when we see these proposed regulations actually published in the Federal Register, if they look like this draft does, there will be mass outcry from professional medical associations, public health experts, providers, advocates, and people themselves. Today's episode is sponsored by Casper, the sleep brand that makes expertly designed products to help you get your best rest one night at a time. Casper products are cleverly designed to mimic human curves, providing supportive comfort for all kinds of bodies. The original Casper mattress combines multiple supportive memory foams for a quality sleep service with the right amounts of both sink and bounce. Plus, a breathable design helps you sleep cool and regulates your body temperature throughout the night. Casper now offers three mattresses, the original Casper, the Wave, and the Essential, as well as a wide array of other products like pillows and sheets to ensure an overall better sleep experience, all designed, developed, and assembled in the U.S., of course. 
Casper offers affordable prices because they cut out the middleman and sell directly to you with free shipping in the U.S. and Canada. Plus, you can be sure of your purchase with Casper's 100-night risk-free sleep-on-it trial. But as a Casper owner for years now, I can vouch for the fact that it's very unlikely you'll ever feel the urge to return yours. And when that impossibly small box shows up at your door, if you have any kids in the house, make sure they're around to witness the unboxing. It's not just a mattress, it's a physics lesson in a box. You can get $50 towards select mattresses by visiting casper.com slash best and using the offer code best at checkout. That's casper.com slash best and offer code best for $50 off your mattress purchase. Terms and conditions apply. Now I say that I am a women's health provider who, in a comprehensive way, provides women's health care to include abortion, not despite my Christian identity, but because of mm-hmm, it. Mm-hmm. Because the compassionate aspect of Christianity is what compels me to act on the compassion that I feel for my patients. And so what I essentially had to do was to find that there was nothing mutually exclusive about my faith identity and my chosen craft. And do you find, you know, when people talk about faith issues sort of in the the public sphere, you know, more often than not, if they're talking about reproductive health and they're talking about abortion, the lines are drawn, you know, very starkly. You know, you're on one side or the other. And more often than not, the faith perspective is viewed as sort of anti-abortion. Why do you think that is? I think, one, it's the the default observation of the patriarchal custom of controlling women's lives by primarily controlling their reproduction. I think it is an ahistoric narrative of what the religious position has been on reproductive health, being particularly pregnancy. I personally am older than the pro-life movement. Mm. If you look at the fact that the first overt political opposition to abortion happened in 1980 with the rise of the moral majority. In 1980, uh, I was a senior in high school and I had become a Christian at 15. So this whole notion that Christians, in particular fundamentalist Christians, have always held the position that abortion is immoral is a relatively new one. So I think the effective conflation of politics and the extreme religious values where abortion and reproductive health have been politicized allow people to assume that if they are Christian, then they have to be conservative. And so de facto, if you're Christian, authentically Christian, you must vote politically conservative, which has been Republican politics. So I think it's been this really blurring of uh, politics and religion to the benefit of very narrow interests of controlling the reproductive lives of women. And so when someone says there's nothing mutually exclusive about being a person of faith and supporting reproductive rights, they are alleged to be not authentically Christian. And I simply beg to be the counter-narrative and to differ. We've made women bystanders in their own lives. We've kind of created, we've turned them into public space. We talk about an issue that occurs in the context of their lives and their bodies, but we don't talk to women who are at risk. We don't talk to women who've had to make that decision. And it also leaves us with the fallacy that we know who the women who have abortions are. When I was the medical director of Planned Parenthood here, I did abortions for women who were staffers for senators on the Hill. I did abortions for uh, teenagers from Southeast D.C. I did abortions for uh, teenagers from affluent communities in Bethesda. In Mississippi, I see doctors, lawyers, nurses, and I see poor women from the Delta. So when you ask me who the women who seek abortions are, if you look in the mirror, you have a pretty good representation of who they are. How do we remove the veneer of legitimizing people by, like when you say a cultural life or pro-life, those kind of titles and that kind of jingoism subordinates critical thinking. So one of the things we have to do is pull the cover rather than referring to people who are pro-fetus or pro-birth, but then the same people deny access to the resources necessary to parent with a modicum of dignity. We have to stop calling them pro-life. We have to refer to them as being anti-abortion or pro-birth and then call into question the internal inconsistencies about being against abortion and contraception. 
And so we have to change the conversation and move away from common ground and more civil discourse to honest disagreement. But I say first, we have to deconstruct the notion of allowing people to, under the moniker of a, saying life and having that term be very nebulous and let it mean whatever people want it to mean, to really calling out what it means politically when you are against abortion and contraception. It means that you're pro-natalist, pro-birth, and that is ultimately anti-woman and it's patriarchal. I know in the last year, uh, you and Ricky Solinger have, have released this fantastic book that I'm looking forward to reading the full book. I've, I've read excerpts of it, Reproductive Justice and Introduction. And I want to I want to really spend some time on that because it seems to me that when we talk about issues of women's reproductive freedom and abortion access and the full range of women's reproductive health, the assumption sometimes, even even on the so-called left or among progressive people, is that we assume we're all talking about the same thing. but there really is a difference, isn't there, between the way that some folks talk about these issues and the way that other people do. And it seems to me that divide is often rooted in issues of race and class. So talk a little bit about that, if you could, historically, the way these things are framed and why those framings can sometimes be problematic and why you have chosen to talk about this as an issue of reproductive justice as opposed to, let's say, reproductive choice, reproductive freedom, some of the terms that other people use. What are the differences and why do they matter? In 1994, Hillary Clinton was leading a health care reform campaign on behalf of her husband. And somehow the Democratic Party as a whole thought that if they omitted mentioning reproductive health care from health care reform, they could somehow slide it past the Republicans. Well, how well do you think that worked? It did not, clearly. (laughs) But we black women, 12 of us black women were in Chicago hearing about this plan. And we had our WTF moment, like, excuse me. Reproductive health care is the main driver of any woman to a doctor. So if you're going to omit reproductive health care, you're basically offering us a male-centered health care plan you want us women to support. That wasn't going to fly for us 12 black women. So we decided to form a coalition, put an ad in the Washington Post to say no, and we coined the term reproductive justice in that moment by splicing together reproductive rights, which basically focuses on abortion rights, but saying, no, we need social justice too, because it's social justice issues that help women determine if they're ready to become a parent or not. And so we splice together reproductive rights and social justice and coined reproductive justice, not only to serve as an ad for that Washington Post ad in 1994, but it served to spark a whole new way of organizing among women of color, because we said it's about abortion, but it's beyond abortion. It's about health care and living wages and environmental justice and the school to prison pipeline and Black Lives Matter. It's about a whole lot more. And once we started organizing our movement of women of color using this new framework, what we discovered was that the more radical wing of the white women's movement was attracted to our framework because they had also been very frustrated by the paralysis of the pro-life, pro-choice debate, only focusing on abortion and ignoring all the other issues that women and families have to deal with. And so without us intending it, reproductive justice took on a life of its own, eventually started eclipsing discussions around pro-choice, pro-life, because there were people who were both on both sides who could understand and resonate with the fact that all pregnancies should be wanted. And if a woman has a planned pregnancy, but she doesn't have health care, if she doesn't have job security, if she's experiencing violence, that planned wanted pregnancy may become an unwanted pregnancy. 
And then maybe an unplanned pregnancy where the person just got caught by surprise, but then did an assessment and say, okay, I'm ready. This is my time. I've got health care. We won't be financially stressed. My other children are okay. I'm going to turn this unplanned pregnancy into an, a wanted pregnancy. That's kind of how people actually make those decisions. And so the politics of trying to just start with the pregnancy never made sense to us because you got to go upstream and look what's happening in people's lives as these pregnancies come along. And that's what reproductive justice calls attention to. Because it came from African-American women, we define white supremacy and neoliberalism as the largest threats to people being able to make autonomous reproductive decisions because those are the things that threaten the right to have a child, the right not to have a child, and the right to parent your children in safe and healthy environments, which is the core definition of reproductive justice. Well, I think that's so powerful because, you know, we do get stuck in these dichotomies of pro-choice and and anti-choice or what they want to call themselves pro-life. But like you said, there are folks on the side that, that are frankly restrictionist, if not abolitionist, when it comes to abortion, and they are not on the side that most of us on the left certainly consider our side. And yet, there are people within that camp who could be very open to the idea that women have to have the kinds of choices that allow them to make decisions about when to have children and when they do choose to have children, have those children healthy and and in a position to actually raise them. And obviously one of the things about that that's so important is that it really allows us to, to I think, on a political level, not to be cynical or, or, or think about it only in that way, but I think it allows us to tell who are the people on that anti-abortion, anti-choice, whatever term we use side, who are really just about controlling women in, in, in an obvious patriarchal, misogynistic way, and those who actually give a damn about women's health and and, and women's freedom? Because we need to know who's who, right? I mean, there are people on that side who are clearly uh, have no interest in empowering women at all. And then there are those who talk as if they do, but yet they're still on this highly reactionary tip currently. And I think with the reproductive justice frame, you allow us to sort of break that dichotomy a bit. How how have you found that framing to have affected the larger discourse first, let's say, with regard to some of the traditional white-dominated liberal reproductive choice organizations? And then how has it played or has it really had any impact on some of the anti choice abortion restrictionist folks in your estimation? I think it's impacted people on both sides of the discourse. As I said, we've become the gravitational node for, I think, the reproductive health rights and justice movement because more and more people are using it and sometimes trying to even co-opt our frame on the left. Uh, So I think we've had a decided impact on that. On the right, I think we've also provided a talking point is you read my latest book, Radical Reproductive Justice. I actually have several essays in there by people who self-define as pro-lifers using the reproductive justice framework. And so they have defined for themselves the common ground that they see with those of us who are supporting abortion rights, but at the same time supporting more broadly women's human rights. And so I think we've made some inroads there. On that issue of white supremacy, it's a very tricky ideology, and it has all kinds of ways of weaving itself into people's narrative and understanding of issues, including the issue of reproductive justice. One of the things I wanted to ask you about, because it's been so pernicious and also so common in the last several years, is the way in which some of the folks who would roll back women's reproductive freedoms, justice, access to various forms of reproductive health care have couched their, particularly their anti-abortion narrative, in the politics of racial ecumenism and equity. The folks who were out there saying, you know, abortion is genocide against black people. And it's a very cynical use of racial justice terminology and concepts. And these, of course, are reactionary people usually 
actively doing this who have never really demonstrated a significant amount of concern for actual genocide against black and brown bodies, but they're using it in this case. Could you talk a little bit about where that comes from, what it's really about, and how do folks arm themselves against the manipulation of those really legitimate concerns that black communities have about the way that they have been used and they have been experimented on and they have been manipulated? How do we arm ourselves against the use of that for ends that are really quite in line with white supremacy in so many ways, as well as misogyny and patriarchy? Uh, We had to deal with this in 2010 when these billboards first went up around Atlanta, basically saying that black children are an endangered species. I wrote about it in my latest book. And what that basically was saying is that black women are committing genocide against the black race, they claim, because we were choosing to exercise reproductive control. Now, that's not an original thought. That is something Marcus Garvey said in the 1920s. He didn't say it quite as rudely, but he thought that we should overbreed ourselves as a response to white supremacy. So that's not an original thought by any means. But this billboard attack was very unusual. What it turned out is that black surrogates had been used by the white anti-abortion movement to create this myth that black women were being coerced into having abortions because of the race of the child. Now, the myth fell apart when we pointed out that you could never find a black woman who was choosing an abortion because she was surprised that her child was going to be black. So we wondered whether we were the real targets of this advertising campaign, or was it designed to make white people feel guilty about supporting abortion for fear of being defined as racist if they do. It really was a very well thought out manipulative message that you could not read on its surface because it just did not make sense on its surface. But it also accompanied bills in state legislatures that empowered or even required doctors to inquire about the motives of women seeking abortion, mainly women of color seeking abortion, because white women were never asked, are you having an abortion because of the race or the gender of the child? It was always directed towards African-American or Asian-American women, this accusation that we could have been having abortions because of the race or the gender of the child. So it set doctors up to, for the first time, a question a woman's motive for seeking a service. And that's that was very unusual because heretofore, doctors' questions were restricted to medical ones. You know, when was your last menstrual period? Not, why are you having this service? And so they were trying to write into law a requirement that doctors get into women's motives. We don't think it was, again, to help there be more Black or Asian babies in America. It was to write into law the obligation of doctors to serve as judges on women's motives for seeking abortions, which, of course, would have then been amplified and expanded to affect white women, because there are some people who say, you shouldn't have an abortion just to continue your education. You shouldn't have an abortion just to uh, not be poor. You know, you'll figure out a way. You shouldn't have an abortion if you've been raped. You'll figure it out. I mean, there are all kinds of people who make judgments about women having abortion. And so they were trying to use Black people as a way to write in a into being a regulation that would then allow them to better control white women. And and I think your point is really well taken that that whole idea of, you know, the most dangerous place for a black child is in, is in its mother's womb. That was clearly aimed at white people. I mean, that was aimed at the, at the emotional nerve center of white people to get them, I think, to believe that by being against abortion, you're actually taking a stance for racial justice. Yes, for racial justice. So it helps to assuage some of that guilt. It allows, it allows some white liberals hope in their mind to be peeled off. Um, and, and it also, but and, what, for, and for racists to declare themselves civil rights champions. Right, right. Because the sponsors of all of this legislation are the people in Congress who have opposed every civil rights act that's come across their desk.
If you would love a way to financially support this show without it costing you anything, there's good news. You can support the show by bookmarking and using my affiliate link every time you shop with that company online. Y you know, basically the one company online. Lots of evil tendencies, owned by the richest dude in the world, that one. Chances are you shop there at least now and then, maybe even a lot. Perhaps you make a lot of business-related purchases, I know some of you do. Or maybe you have a standard selection of home goods you get delivered regularly. In any case, you might have some mixed feelings about it, and you'd be right to. But if you do end up using the site, at least you can help siphon off some of that corporate blood money to help support the production of this show. Your shopping experience will be identical to usual, and it won't cost you a dime more. You can get the affiliate link from the show notes on the device you're using to listen right now, or you can find it on the sidebar of the homepage at bestofleft.com. You can bookmark the link so you can set it and forget it while continuing to support us into the future. It helps more than you think, I promise it does, and the more who join in, the more it helps. So thanks for taking the time. Why did you and other African-American women decide to coin the phrase reproductive justice? Could you provide a little bit of historical context for that? So in June of 1994, there were 12 of us who were attending a conference in Chicago, and it was about universal health care reform. It was during the Clinton administration, and we were the only 12 black women at this conference. And so we did what black women do. We caucused. <laughs> <laughs> and so we got in, I believe it was Loretta Ross's hotel room, and we talked about what would healthcare, true healthcare, look like for women of color, specifically for black women? What were our unique health needs? And we began to talk about our health needs within the context of our lived experiences and said that we can't separate our social historical location from our ontological existence. And that is how reproductive justice got birthed. After that, Loretta Ross then took the framework that we had began to create. And, and I, I have to add that out of that meeting came this historic ad, a signature ad signed by 853, I think, black women <laughs> from around the country saying that Black women have unique reproductive health care needs that aren't just centered around abortion, but include the full spectrum of reproductive health services and also are closely linked to our ability to access economic resources, to live in safe communities, are attached to our unique health issues around, for instance, fibroids and access to well woman care and pre and postnatal care and access to contraception. And so these 853 black women signed on to the signature ad and it was published in Politico and the Washington Post. And after that, Loretta kind of spearheaded the charge of further fleshing out the reproductive justice framework. And so literally taking black feminist theory, merging it with the human rights framework and applying it to reproductive politics. And at the heart of reproductive justice is this intersectional analysis that says we cannot separate women's lived experiences. We cannot separate issues of race, class, gender, age, ability, sexual orientation from the other pieces of women's lives, that we have to look at the totality. And so RJ, as we affectionately call it, rests upon the three pillars, one being that every woman has a right to have children and the right to determine the way and method in which she will have children, a right to not have children, and a right to access the birth control methods to help her to be able to control her fertility, and the right to raise her children in healthy and safe environments without fear of violence from individuals 
or from state and governmental actors. And so in a sense saying, it's not just about bringing children into the world, they have to do more than survive. They have to thrive and flourish. So that's, that's our day in a nutshell. That's very important. And the intersectionality is very important because women are not one dimensional. Absolutely. So I want to shift a bit to theology. You know, oftentimes we find that there are conservatives who will raise a few biblical passages, primarily from the book of Jeremiah and Job about reproductive health care and what should be available to women and what should not be available to women. And as we both, we all know, Katie and, and Tony, the Bible has very little to say about abortion. And so I would love if you, Tony, first starting, would talk a little bit about your theology and what in your faith fuels your work on RJ issues. So I started working on RJ issues as a grassroots activist but also as a woman of faith who had a different understanding of what the canonical text said. My understanding, actually, and now being a trained theoethicist, is that the Bible doesn't say anything about abortion. doesn't say anything specific about abortion, in fact. And the interpretations that we are hearing in the public square by those who are anti-choice and anti-abortion are based upon human interpretation. But when you look at what the canonical text says in the Christian tradition, you have to look at what are the, what was the historical perspective? What was happening during the time that the text was written? Who were the people who wrote the text? What was going on in their lives? But the beauty of the text is that the, the text is a living text. Those of us from the Christian tradition call it a living text. And so it is applicable to everyday lives. And so as someone who applies a womanist theoethical lens to the text and to my understanding of reproductive justice, I understand that the, my Christian tradition is grounded in a code of love, that it is really a religion of Jesus right? And that Jesus walked amongst the disinherited. Jesus was poor. Jesus ministered to those who were dispossessed and who had their backs up against the wall and who lacked access to health care. And so that is how I approach my work as a womanist theoethicist, that in fact, I've got to consider women's access to economic resources or lack thereof. I've got to understand that certain populations of women in this country have been dehumanized and their bodies have been policed by the state and continue to be policed by the state and that their fertility has been controlled according to whatever the economic goals have been of this country at any given time. And so I apply that lens as well as a lens that says, all women, all human beings have the moral capacity and the moral authority to make decisions about their bodies, their autonomy, and that that has been given to us by the creator, as well as free will to make those decisions. And that at the end of the day, we're all looking for what does the good life look like? What ought we to do? What ought we not to do? And we all have our internal moral codes or value systems, and that those should not be legislated. I think I made a big miscalculation with Latino, Latina voters last time around. I think I did not realize how many of them actually were specifically moved because they are, quote unquote, pro-life or 
anti-abortion. Yeah. I was like, whoa, a lot more Latinos and Latinas were voting for Trump on this particular issue than I even realized. So, right, right. So, Tanya, what are the particularities in terms of how the Latinx community is perhaps being overlooked? Our complexity vis-a-vis reproductive rights is somehow being overlooked. I think for a long time, reproductive rights have been framed from a very, like, um, polarizing ideological perspective. You're either pro-life or pro-choice. But the reality is that many of our families don't find themselves in either box. And we have to be able to create that gray area because it exists. You know, we've learned from that uh, Respect Albuquerque Women campaign we ran six years ago that it matters how you approach the conversation. It matters how you ask the question. If you ask somebody if they're pro-life or pro-choice, they're going to give you one or the other. But if you ask people, do you believe that women and families should make decisions about their whole entire lives, including abortion, for themselves, alongside their families, they'll say yes. So I think it's critical for us to reclaim um, the framing of this conversation and get in front of the narrative that puts our families in this conservative box that doesn't fit. We've covered this at Futuro Media. I, I just need to to talk about America by the numbers when you went out to Rochester, Maria, black mothers are more likely to die in childbirth. Right. So one of the stories that we covered um, on our public television series, America by the Numbers, um, was this story of toxic stress in African-American uh, communities, black women, uh, Latina women, um, and how living in conditions of perpetual stress over decades uh, potentially centuries actually has an impact on your reproductive health. And so some of these babies um, are dying to black women and Latina women, impacted, in fact, in part because of toxic stress. You know, and toxic stress is kind of like stress that never goes away. You know, hunger, living in a violent community, you know, being a, a, a former a slave who was, you know, being hunted down and how that kind of gets embedded in your system. It's that kind of stress. So, Regina, you've written about reimagining black motherhood, right? In in Rewired, mm-hmm. in, in, in Rewired.news, you wrote, and I'm quoting, since chattel slavery on stolen land, state actors have sought to control black women's reproduction and ability to parent in one way or another. Hmm. So tell us about those challenges specifically to black motherhood and maternal health for for women of color. And and I guess in the context, Regina, of, you know, what we're all witnessing, which is children of color being torn away. That too. Ripped away from their mother's arms. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think it's important to include as part of this conversation the reproductive justice framework um, and the significance of saying that black women not only have the right to parent and choose not to parent, but to parent in safe and healthy environments. Um, And that framework is applied to communities of color broadly. Um, And so the conversation around police violence and the way that black mothers' children are being stolen by the police and then what we're seeing along the border in the way that ICE agents are separating families. I mean, this is all connected. All of these oppressions are connected. Um, But when you talk about the black maternal health crisis, you know, you mentioned black women are three to four times more likely to die while giving birth than white women. Um, There's been a lot of coverage of this issue. Thankfully, Um, it's been lifted up. A number of organizations have been doing this work for a very long time. Recently, the Black Mamas Matter Alliance has helped to lift up and amplify these stories. They've been covered in The New York Times and other places highlighting this importance of doulas, talking about the birth justice movement that a lot of Mm-hmm. People are empowering themselves and safeguarding pregnancy when black women um, were never really given that right. For the entirety of your lives, hmm. abortion has been legal. Am I right? Yeah, absolutely. Yes. All right. So I'm revealing, right, my age. I was born at a time when abortion was not legal in the United mm-hmm. States, which is why mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, there's a generation of women who have lived with abortion as essentially the law of the land. True. Um, and, you know, for me, this was a very, I was a kid growing up in the political movement, the women's movement, and uh, reproductive rights and abortion rights were central to this. Yeah. I have this memory of this one particular photo. I'm desperately searching for it. I thought it was in Time magazine, a woman in a fetal position in a pool of blood. But but what we do know, and it may have been this same photograph, this photograph was in Ms. Magazine. It created a huge stir. 
The woman was Jerry Santoro. She was hunched over in a pool of blood in a Connecticut hotel. It was a back alley abortion. It was published nine years after her death, less than a year after the passing of Roe v. Wade. And the headline um, for Ms. Magazine was Never Again. And the NARAL Pro-Choice America Foundation reported that before Roe v. Wade, an estimated 1.2 million women in the United States had illegal abortions every single year. And that as many as 5,000 women died in the United States every year because of having a bad abortion. So the thought that as, you know, that there may be young women who end up seeing in their lives the fact that this could become illegal. Wow. Um, and, you know, women have been needing and getting abortion since the beginning of time. Mm-hmm. And desperate women will resort to desperate situations. We know this. Many of us have been there. Desperation leads to desperation. I mean, we are at a time where things like medication abortion, you know, are accessible in a way that it wasn't before Roe. And so there is a lot of conversations around how to make it more accessible to people should Roe be overturned because the majority of abortions are occurring at a time when people could take a medication abortion pill and terminate. So it may be a different time, but it'll be a time. We've just heard clips today, starting with the broadcast, talking with Supreme Court expert Mark Joseph Stern about the conservative strategy to hollow out Roe v. Wade rather than overturning it directly. Counterspin spoke with Kenzie Hastad about the new rules around reproductive health coming out of the Trump administration. Making Contact featured Dr. Willie Parker discussing the crossroads of faith and reproductive justice. Tim Wise on Speak Out interviewed Loretta Ross about the origins of the movement for reproductive justice. A second Making Contact segment featured Tori Bond, a contemporary of Loretta Ross, giving her perspective on the reproductive justice movement. And finally, we just heard In the Thick examining some of the specific reproduction issues that affect communities of color. And although we don't have a Midterms Minute segment for you today, I'd like to urge you to explore our show notes where we've organized quick links to important information and resources to help you help progressive candidates in the next primaries on August 21st and 28th. So definitely check out the notes today. We'll spotlight more races for you in the next episode. As always, you can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now we'll hear from you. Jay, hi, this is Jeff. Living in Charlotte, previously from Cleveland. I've been a long-time listener of your show. I've called in a few times. Just calling you to update you on the passing of a liberal commentator, Ed Schultz. Ed Schultz started out with the Air America. I started listening to Ed Schultz during the Air America days back in the early to mid-2000s. And when the show, when the network became defunct, he found a way to have his own show on several different other networks, and including MSNBC and most recently had his own YouTube channel. I haven't heard very much talk about the passing of Ed Schultz, and I don't know if many of the listeners knew about it. That's the reason why I was calling in, so you can hear it. Thank you. I love your show. Take care. Hey, Jay. Craig from Ohio again. I thought I'd follow up on my idea that progressivism as a political philosophy is egalitarian, communitarian, and utilitarian. It was on my mind all day yesterday, and there's something else I wanted to mention. When we on the left have this debate over what we stand for, liberalism often gets confused with progressivism. To me, it's been clear for a long time that they're distinct, separate political philosophies. But not everyone shares my understanding. I hear all the time politicians who describe themselves as both progressive and liberal interchangeably, as if there's no difference between the two concepts. Podcasters I listen to often do the same thing. And I think this conflation explains why followers of politics like V have the impression that progressivism lacks coherence. I would argue that it's actually a feature of liberalism to lack foundational principles, not progressivism. 
But when Bernie Sanders, Barack Obama, and Hillary Clinton all call themselves progressives, and members of the media often refer to them as liberals, you can see where the confusion comes in. Maybe the distinction is so clear to me because I grew up in an extended family of working class Democratic Party union members. Then I married into an academic family of intellectuals, and we argue politics all the time. I've noticed that the liberals in my family, those who back establishment Democrats and are worried that newcomers like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez will move the party to the too far left, constantly shift their arguments to account for what they think others believe. It reminds me of something, I think it was T.S. Eliot, who said that liberals are maddening because they won't take their own side in an argument. And I have definitely found this to be true. Furthermore, their big concern is, what do conservatives think and how can we appeal to Republican voters? Which, to me, explains why they refuse to stick to bedrock progressive principles like egalitarianism, communitarianism, and utilitarianism. Liberals are sympathetic to these ideals, but they don't hold them as inviolable. In fact, I'm often grilled about what such concepts even mean with them making the same kinds of arguments we hear so often in the news. Stuff like, how will we pay for that? Or, that sounds like socialism. Or, my favorite, how do you know that's even true? I'm not kidding. It's beyond frustrating. So anyway, like I said, I just wanted to add this idea to the conversation because I think it sheds light on the uncertainty V raised for discussion. As always, thanks for the show. Talk to you later. Bye. Hello, my name is Daniel. Um, I'm in Washington. Um, I'm a native born, uh, but I'm actually a Chicano, actually a mix of a bunch of different things, including uh, Native American and uh, black. Just wanted to uh, uh, applaud you for all of your episodes, but this last one that you played was so important from a, a contemporary standpoint because of the, uh, well, ultimately the uh, the anti-immigrant rhetoric, the anti-Latino, um, you know, it's all bad. But I think what is most notable is um, in as much as I, I experienced the Pete Wilson days and I watched that all ramp up and I and I and I basically have been a, a what would be a canary, right, an oppression canary since that time and it's taken you know a lot of effort to get people to really understand what's going on with Lynn Baugh and all the way through uh, Glenn Beck and basically all this demagoguery is the semantic infiltration that happens right um, what they do is they'll, they'll infiltrate a debate with a faulty semantic a fallacious semantic similar to illegal alien right where where the person isn't truly illegal and then are we alienating people right so those are all faulty semantics and what happens is people they're they're brainwashed from that they start to use that faulty semantic and that disseminates almost exponentially to all their friends and acquaintances and not only that and these are people that are well-meaning they don't actually feel this way and then not only that if you try to argue with someone who's using faulty semantics like open borders right you're already arguing from a position of disadvantage so never ever start an argument with someone who's using a faulty semantic you have to correct that anyway i really appreciate everything again it's daniel in washington peace Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. First of all, I want to acknowledge that we missed a show this week. Boy, did, did you notice that we missed a show? I sure as hell noticed that we missed a show. I apologize for that. The reason is that I am still getting over being more sick than I've been in years. Full-on fever, chills, sweats, stomach bug, unable to sleep, sleeping for 10 and a half hours, exhaustion most of the time. It hasn't been good. And we here uh, obviously believe in sick leave, so the show had to be put on hold. There was just no way it was going to get made. The lesson here, I'm pretty sure I know basically what I got and exactly how I got it. Just like any good progressive, I have a reusable water bottle. But while I was on vacation and I sort of got out of my normal routine, I think I forgot to clean it as often as I normally would. 
I think the water went bad and I drank some of it. You can imagine what happened. So uh, I've been paying the price and that's not a mistake I'm going to make again. Uh, so the lesson is keep using those reusable water bottles, but make sure to keep them clean. Sort of obvious advice. Secondly, today, I've been instructed to let you know that we are now on Instagram. We have joined the throngs. Uh, so if you are an Instagram person, find us there. We're posting all kinds of interesting stuff in addition to the show. And thirdly, I want to respond to Daniel from Washington, who we just heard from. He was talking about uh, faulty semantics. I, I think that is basically the same concept as framing is how it's often talked about. And framing is absolutely what is used very often to move the Overton window, another thing we've talked about very recently. But the thing he said that I really wanted to touch on is oppression canary. I love that phrase. That is an excellent phrase, and it frames it in a really good way, because just like taking a canary down into a coal mine is not just about torturing a canary or worrying about whether the canary is going to die— it's a signal. It's a sign for others to protect themselves. So focusing on marginalized groups isn't just about going to where the need is greatest, although it is about that. It's also about recognizing systemic problems and helping to stop them before they spread. So as we heard today, policymakers like to try out various strategies to control women's bodies on women of color first as sort of a pilot program. But that's always just a stepping stone to go after everyone. But of course, let's not have anyone misconstrue the analogy. Marginalized communities are obviously not sacrificial canaries who we can blithely watch die as a, a warning signal to the rest of us. I only mean it in the same spirit that Daniel did, that marginalized communities are usually the first to feel the effects, and that everyone else would be wise to heed the warning. That's going to be it for today. Keep the comments coming in. As always, the number to dial 202-999-3991. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestofleft. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode. All that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Mm-hmm.